Section six of Mark Twain's Autobiography, Volume two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. New York, Friday, February second, nineteen o six. Subject of February first continued. The death of Susie Clemens ends with mention of Dr. John Brown. It explained that Susie was slightly ill, nothing of consequence, but we were disquieted and began to cable for later news. This was Friday. All day, no answer, and the ship to leave Southampton next day at noon. Clara and her mother began packing to be ready in case the news should be bad. Finally came a telegram saying, Wait for cablegram in the morning. This was not satisfactory, not reassuring. I cabled again, asking that the answer be sent to Southampton, for the day was now closing. I waited in the post office that night till the doors were closed toward midnight, in the hope that good news might still come, but there was no message. We sat silent at home till one in the morning, waiting, waiting for we knew not what. Then we took the earliest morning train, and when we reached Southampton the message was there. It said the recovery would be long, but certain. This was a great relief to me, but not to my wife. She was frightened. She and Clara went aboard the steamer at once and sailed for America to nurse Susie. I remained behind to search for another and larger house in Guilford. That was the 15th of August, 1896. Three days later, when my wife and Clara were about halfway across the ocean, I was standing in our dining-room, thinking of nothing in particular, when a cablegram was put into my hand. It said, Susie was peacefully released today. It is one of the mysteries of our nature that a man, all unprepared, can receive a thunderstroke like that and live. There is but one reasonable explanation of it. The intellect is stunned by the shock, and but gropingly gathers the meaning of the words. The power to realize their full import is mercifully wanting. The mind has a dumb sense of vast loss. That is all. It will take mind and memory months, and possibly years, to gather together the details and thus learn and know the whole extent of the loss. A man's house burns down. The smoking wreckage represents only a ruined home that was dear through years of use and pleasant associations. By and by, as the days and weeks go on, first he misses this, then that, then the other thing, and when he casts about for it, he finds that it was in that house. Always it is an essential. There was but one of its kind. It cannot be replaced. It was in that house. 
it is irrevocably lost. He did not realize that it was an essential when he had it. He only discovers it now when he finds himself balked, hampered by its absence. It will be years before the tale of lost essentials is complete, and not till then can he truly know the magnitude of his disaster. The 18th of August brought me the awful tidings. The mother and the sister were out there in mid-Atlantic, ignorant of what was happening, flying to meet this incredible calamity. All that could be done to protect them from the full force of the shock was done by relatives and good friends. They went down the bay and met the ship at night, but did not show themselves until morning, and then only to Clara. When she returned to the stateroom, she did not speak, and did not need to. Her mother looked at her and said, Susie is dead. At half-past ten that night, Clara and her mother completed their circuit of the globe, and drew up at Elmira by the same train and in the same car which had borne them and me westward from it one year, one month, and one week before. And again Susie was there, not waving her welcome in the glare of the lights as she had waved her farewell to us thirteen months before, but lying white and fair in her coffin, in the house where she was born. The last thirteen days of Susie's life were spent in our own house in Hartford, the home of her childhood, and always the dearest place in the earth to her. About her she had faithful old friends, her pastor, Mr. Twitchell, who had known her from the cradle, and who had come a long journey to be with her her uncle and aunt, Mr. and Mrs. Theodore Crane, Patrick, the coachman, Katie, who had begun to serve us when Susie was a child of eight years, John and Ellen, who had been with us many years. Also, Jean was there. At the hour when my wife and Clara set sail for America, Susie was in no danger. Three hours later there came a sudden change for the worse. Meningitis set in, and it was immediately apparent that she was death-struck. That was Saturday, the 15th of August. That evening she took food for the last time, Jean's letter to me. The next morning the brain fever was raging. She walked the floor a little in her pain and delirium, then succumbed to weakness and returned to her bed. Previously she had found hanging in a closet a gown which she had seen her mother wear. She thought it was her mother, dead, and she kissed it and cried. About noon she became blind, an effect of the disease, and bewailed it to her uncle. From Jean's letter I take this sentence, which needs no comment. About one in the afternoon Susie spoke for the last time. 
it was only one word that she said when she spoke that last time and it told of her longing she groped with her hands and found katie and caressed her face and said mamma how gracious it was that in that forlorn hour of wreck and ruin with the night of death closing around her she should have been granted that beautiful illusion that the latest vision which rested upon the clouded mirror of her mind should have been the vision of her mother and the latest emotion she should know in life the joy and peace of that dear imagined presence about two o'clock she composed herself as if for sleep and never moved again she fell into unconsciousness and so remained two days and five hours until tuesday evening at seven minutes past seven when the release came she was twenty-four years and five months old on the twenty-third her mother and her sister saw her laid to rest she that had been our wonder and our worship the summer seasons of susie's childhood were spent at quarry farm on the hills east of elmira new york the other seasons of the year at the home in hartford like other children she was blithe and happy fond of play unlike the average of children she was at times much given to retiring within herself and trying to search out the hidden meanings of the deep things that make the puzzle and pathos of human existence and in all the ages have baffled the inquirer and mocked him as a little child aged seven she was oppressed and perplexed by the maddening repetition of the stock incidents of our race's fleeting sojourn here just as the same thing has oppressed and perplexed maturer minds from the beginning of time a myriad of men are born they labor and sweat and struggle for bread they squabble and scold and fight they scramble for little mean advantages over each other age creeps upon them infirmities follow shames and humiliations bring down their prides and their vanities those they love are taken from them and the joy of life is turned to aching grief the burden of pain care misery grows heavier year by year at length ambition is dead pride is dead vanity is dead longing for release is in their place it comes at last the only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them and they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence where they achieved nothing where they were a mistake and a failure and a foolishness where they have left no sign that they have existed a world which will lament them a day and forget them forever then another myriad takes their place and copies all they did and goes along the same profitless road and vanishes as they vanished 
to make room for another and another and a million other myriads to follow the same arid path through the same desert and accomplish what the first myriad and all the myriads that came after it accomplished nothing mamma what is it all for asked susie preliminarily stating the above details in her own halting language after long brooding over them alone in the privacy of the nursery a year later she was groping her way alone through another sunless bog but this time she reached a rest for her feet for a week her mother had not been able to go to the nursery evenings at the child's prayer hour she spoke of it was sorry for it and said she would come to-night and hoped she could continue to come every night and hear susie pray as before noticing that the child wished to respond but was evidently troubled as to how to word her answer she asked what the difficulty was susie explained that miss foot the governess had been teaching her about the indians and their religious beliefs whereby it appeared that they had not only a god but several this had set susie to thinking as a result of this thinking she had stopped praying she qualified this statement that is she modified it saying she did not now pray in the same way as she had formerly done her mother said tell me about it dear well mamma the indians believed they knew but now we know they were wrong by and by it can turn out that we are wrong so now i only pray that there may be a god and a heaven or something better i wrote down this pathetic prayer in its precise wording at the time in a record which we kept of the children's sayings and my reverence for it has grown with the years that have passed over my head since then its untaught grace and simplicity are a child's but the wisdom and the pathos of it are of all the ages that have come and gone since the race of man has lived and longed and hoped and feared and doubted to go back a year susie aged seven several times her mother said to her there there susie you mustn't cry over little things this furnished susie a text for thought she had been breaking her heart over what had seemed vast disasters a broken toy a picnic cancelled by thunder and lightning and rain the mouse that was growing tame and friendly in the nursery caught and killed by the cat and now came this strange revelation for some unaccountable reason these were not vast calamities why how is the size of calamities measured what is the rule there must be some way to tell the great ones from the small ones what is the law of these proportions 
She examined the problem earnestly and long. She gave it her best thought from time to time, for two or three days, but it baffled her, defeated her, and at last she gave up and went to her mother for help. Mama, what is little things? It seemed a simple question at first, and yet before the answer could be put into words, unsuspected and unforeseen difficulties began to appear. They increased, they multiplied, they brought about another defeat. The effort to explain came to a standstill. Then Susie tried to help her mother out, with an instance, an example, an illustration. The mother was getting ready to go downtown, and one of her errands was to buy a long-promised toy watch for Susie. If you forgot the watch, Mama, would that be a little thing? She was not concerned about the watch, for she knew it would not be forgotten. What she was hoping for was that the answer would unriddle the riddle and bring rest and peace to her perplexed little mind. The hope was disappointed, of course, for the reason that the size of a misfortune is not determinable by an outsider's measurement of it, but only by the measurements applied to it by the person specially affected by it. The king's lost crown is a vast matter to the king, but of no consequence to the child. The lost toy is a great matter to the child, but in the king's eyes it is not a thing to break the heart about. A verdict was reached, but it was based upon the above model, and Susie was granted leave to measure her disasters thereafter with her own tape-line. I will throw in a note or two here, touching the time when Susie was seventeen. She had written a play modeled upon Greek lines, and she and Clara and Margaret Warner and other young comrades had played it to a charmed houseful of friends in our house in Hartford. Charles Dudley Warner and his brother George were present. They were near neighbors and warm friends of ours. They were full of praises of the workmanship of the play, and George Warner came over the next morning and had a long talk with Susie. The result of it was this verdict. She is the most interesting person I have ever known of either sex. Remark of a lady, Mrs. Cheney, I think, author of the biography of her father, Reverend Dr. Bushnell, I made this note after one of my talks with Susie. She knows all there is of life and its meanings. She could not know it better if she had lived it out to its limit. Her intuitions and ponderings and analyzings seem to have taught her all that my sixty years have taught me. Remark of another lady, she is speaking of Susie's last days. In those last days she walked as if on air. 
and her walk answered to the buoyancy of her spirits and the passion of intellectual energy and activity that possessed her i return now to the point where i made this diversion from her earliest days as i have already indicated susy was given to examining things and thinking them out by herself she was not trained to this it was the make of her mind in matters involving questions of fair or unfair dealings she reviewed the details patiently and surely and arrived at a right and logical conclusion in munich when she was six years old she was harassed by a recurrent dream in which a ferocious bear figured she came out of the dream each time sorely frightened and crying she set herself the task of analyzing this dream the reasons of it the purpose of it the origin of it no the moral aspect of it her verdict arrived at after candid and searching investigation exposed it to the charge of being one-sided and unfair in its construction for as she worded it she was never the one that ate but always the one that was eaten susy backed her good judgment in matters of morals with conduct to match even upon occasions when it caused her sacrifice to do it when she was six and her sister clara four the pair were troublesomely quarrelsome punishments were tried as a means of breaking up this custom these failed then rewards were tried a day without quarrel brought candy the children were their own witnesses each for or against her own self once susy took the candy hesitated then returned it with a suggestion that she was not fairly entitled to it clara kept hers so here was a conflict of evidence one witness for a quarrel and one against it but the better witness of the two was on the affirmative side and the quarrel stood proved and no candy due to either side there seemed to be no defense for clara yet there was and susy furnished it and clara went free susy said i don't know whether she felt wrong in her heart but i didn't feel right in my heart it was a fair and honorable view of the case and especially acute analysis of it for a child of six to make there was no way to convict clara now except to put her on the stand again and review her evidence there was a doubt as to the fairness of this procedure since her former evidence had been accepted and not challenged at the time the doubt was examined and canvassed then she was given the benefit of it and acquitted which was just as well for in the meantime she had eaten the candy anyway whenever i think of susy 
I think of Marjorie Fleming. There was but one Marjorie Fleming. There can never be another. No doubt I think of Marjorie when I think of Susie, mainly because Dr. John Brown, that noble and beautiful soul, rescuer of marvelous Marjorie from oblivion, was Susie's great friend in her babyhood, her worshiper and willing slave. In 1873, when Susie was fourteen months old, we arrived in Edinburgh from London, fleeing thither for rest and refuge after experiencing what had been to us an entirely new kind of life. Six weeks of daily luncheons, teas, and dinners away from home. We carried no letters of introduction. We hid ourselves away in Veach's family hotel in George Street and prepared to have a comfortable season all to ourselves. But by good fortune this did not happen. Straightway Mrs. Clemens needed a physician, and I stepped around to 23 Rutland Street to see if the author of Rab and His Friends was still a practicing physician. He was, he came, and for six weeks thereafter we were together every day, either in his house or in our hotel. End of section 6. New York, Friday, February 2, 1906.